Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. In this episode, I interview Baye Gaspar, who might be the most intelligent person in Cameroon, and hell, he might even be the most intelligent person in Africa. The guy's only in his 20s, but absolutely fascinating, brilliant, and very interesting to talk to. So I hope you inter- uh, enjoyed this conversation that spans two hours. One other technicality I want to mention is that I have been saying that the podcast is sponsored by Health Access Sumbawa. That's technically incorrect. They are supported by Kathleen Kennedy Edgar, who is one of my patrons at patreon.com. She then wants to use her support to draw attention to Health Access Sumbawa. That's her position. She wants to advertise them using her own dollars. It's not the nonprofit that's using their donations to fund my podcast. So want to clarify that. And I want to thank Kathy for her support. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Wonder Learn podcast. This is Francis Tappan. I'm here with Baye Gaspar from Cameroon. He is the Einstein of Cameroon. We've already found him. Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Francis. Okay, so we're here right now in Cameroon, and I wanted to talk with you because there's so many questions I have about education. A lot of people look at the problems that we have in Africa, and they believe that education is the key to solve a lot of these problems. And you are perhaps the smartest man in Cameroon. And I'm I'm saying that half-jokingly because obviously I don't know everything, but um, all the people in Cameroon, but you really have done some uh, accomplishments. But let's, before we get into the accomplishments, let's first start off a little bit about you with your background and tell a little bit about where you're from. You're from the extreme north of Cameroon near the Chad border, correct? Yes, uh, correct, uh, Mr. Francis. I'm from uh, extreme north, popularly known as Marwa. I was born there in uh, 11 February 1993. And uh, I am with my parents. They have been with my parents there for a long time. Uh, we, my parents, uh, are from Gizga, a village in uh, Marwa, a village in Marwa called Mijivin. So our tribe is called Gizga. Now, actually, it's interesting you say that because my wife is also half Giziga. Her her father uh, was a Fulani. A Fulani is a very big popular tribe in Africa, but uh, Giziga is the opposite. It's a very tiny little tribe, and I don't even know the size of it. Do you have any idea how many Giziga are running around? Uh, I can't really tell exactly the, the size. But less than a million, right? Yes, less than a million. That's true. Less than yeah. a million. And, and, and maybe only a, a few thousand. I don't know. But uh, the, I don't know anything about the Giziga, and, and Rejoice knows even less, and her mother was a Giziga. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, how the Giziga are distinguished? Because, I, I, like, for example, the Fulani. Fulanis are, are, are tall, thin people who have lots of cattle. These are kind of the stereotypes that they have. Um, and they uh, are very nomadic, um, but not always nomadic. And they have conflicts often with the farmers and that kind of stuff who are more sedentary. These are the stereotypes that the Fulani have. And they're everywhere from Senegal all the way out to the uh, Central African Republic and Chad. What about the Giziga? Do they have any kind of reputation stereotype? Yes, uh, the Giziga, they are, they, they are more popular with the, what, with the traditional dance called Ndarao, 
which is which consists of shaking uh, the, your uh, elbow, shaking it, and then uh, dancing with a, a rhythm, a specific pattern of rhythm that distinguishes them. So it is uh, a unique, the unique nature of gizgas. That dance helped them to remind their ancestral uh, backgrounds and their ancestors who died for. Uh, to help uh, the village, to help the villagers have a better life in the future, and also uh, the Gizgas have one traditional food called uh, habiru. Uh, any person who is cooking it, they just distinguish the person. They know that the person is from uh, the Gizga tribe. So that's these are the two unique characteristics that uh, uniquely describe Gizgas. What is the number of days in a year that a Gizig, if I were hanging out in a Giziga village, what percentage of the days or number of days a year do they actually dance around? Uh, many times, actually. Uh, let's say, uh, like, in a year, they can go through, like, uh, let's say, uh, every month, they can dance, like, two or three times. Because of uh, the occasions, any occasion that presents itself, uh, let's say the 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 lamido. The lamido is the head of the village. They call them lamido. When the lamido is uh, ha- let's say having a newborn, they usually organize a dancing party where people are with drums hitting the drums and ladies are dancing with the rhythm of the drums. Men too usually dra- dance with that rhythm of drums. They usually hold a long stick and stretch their hands and then start dancing. So that's uh, that. These are the situations where uh, people uh, will be gathering to dance. Also, maybe if it is um, a situation where uh, the village, the, the rainy season is coming, is approaching, they usually dance to thank God about uh, the rain that is coming and everything. During harvest period, they also dance to thank God about uh, the 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 the, the, the uh, products they got. And so on. So there are these are the key points, key positions, key situations that the Gizga people usually organize dancing uh, occasions. Okay, so basically you're saying two, three times a month, maybe something like that. Yes. Okay. And so, just to, I like to point that out because sometimes when we're watching National Geographic, it looks like these Africans are dancing every fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, this, in fact, the the global dancing that is two, three uh, times per month, but. Individual families usually organize based on their success too. Let's say their child has got a, a, obtained his examination, he passed well, or something. Occasions like a family member who was out of the village came back. Many many occasions can also lead to the dancing uh, situation. So, is is in most of the cases we have a lot of dancing going on, but. The official dancing where the lamido, the head of the king, like the king of the village organizes dancing officially is uh, like two three times a month okay now let's go on and and your family size is how big right now okay uh my family we have i have two sisters and six brothers so we are uh, nine of us okay and what is your three proudest accomplishments in school that you done right now your age is about 24 25 Okay, uh, <clears throat> the first one was in uh, baccalaureate in GCE advanced level where I had the opportunity to meet uh, Rejoice Abbas, 
uh, who was really a fantastic friend and I'm happy I usually thank God uh, for making me meet her during my career my educational career uh, I was the best student uh, in um, GCE A level science in the whole of uh, Grand North like the Marwa, Garwangaundere all of the, the three regions that's thousands of students yes yes uh, I was the best science student. It also, when I was in Polytechnique, um, Bamenda, I was uh, studying telecommunication, networking and telecommunication engineering. I was uh, also doing an HND, higher national diploma, where I was also the best national student in my department in telecommunication engineering. And I received, in both cases, I received the President's Paul Bias Awards for the best student. And recently, uh, when I was in ICT University, where I studied uh, computer science, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. So um, I was also the best overall student in the university, uh, where I received the President's Award still. And I received seven awards, seven other awards, which include Best Student in Networking, Best Student in Entrepreneurship, in Database Design, in... Uh, Many, many. So I can't remember some. Thank you. And your graduation, you were pretty proud of that because you were also a valedictorian? Yes, yes. Uh, I was proud of my graduation. And uh, um, actually, I had uh, a lot of uh, people coming like, who oh, we need to take you with us. So uh, you need to work with me and so on. So I was really happy and I, my parents were there, so I was very happy for the results and everything. I really uh, congratulate you on that. These are really impressive results. How many uh, awards, Paul B, Paul B is, by the way, the president of Cameroon for the last 40 plus years. Um, how many, reward, how many uh, awards does Paul B give out per year to students? Do you know? Uh, I can't really tell exactly, but uh, a lot. Some first, uh, for, well, according to me and uh, how I encountered those results, those awards, I know that in the, at the level of uh, GCA level, he give awards for the best students, the national best students, and the regional best students. And even at the level of the university, at the level of the HND, he give awards, and at the level of uh, uh, bachelors, he also give awards. So, uh, but only one person is winning per category. Yes. Okay. And you've won how many categories? Three categories. That's amazing. Okay, so now one of the things that rejoice, my wife told me, that she said that when you were in school, all sorts of people would study all night, you'd look like you weren't studying at all, and people were convinced that you were doing witchcraft. <laughs> yeah, actually... Um in class, what I do is, when the teacher is teaching, uh, I mostly pay attention. I understand exactly, like, I leave his situation. I have an image. When he's explaining something, I create a visual representation of his explanation in my brain such that I can refer to so at any point in time. Once I have that visual uh, image uh, representation of that lesson, Anytime they ask me, I can just refer to that image and I'll reproduce the, uh, the complete lesson. 
So any question based in that domain, I will give the market, I will give uh, the the answer correctly. So this is the challenge: is that they're sitting there taking copious notes and they're furious notes, and all of a sudden you're just sitting there practically writing nothing down, and all of a sudden you do ten times better than they do in the test. Yeah, exactly. That's why they usually see I don't uh, practice, I don't go and study, but I pass because I actually have it already stored in my brain. Now, there's two things I think that are dangerous in Cameroon, and I see this also in other parts of Africa, too, as far as the educational system is concerned, is the fact that people like you who are doing really well and honestly doing very well are stymied or blocked or are discouraged by two things. Number one, the accusement, the uh, people accusing you of witchcraft, right? I mean, this is, I, I was not joking. I mean, there are people who seriously think that you, how many people told you that they thought that you were a witchcraft? Many, many. They usually come and say, are you practicing witchcraft? How comes you are doing this, you are doing that? Uh, I'm just quiet. I tell them that, no, it's not actually witchcraft. Uh, the secret is I usually produce an image representation of uh, whatever uh, the teacher is saying so that I can refer to any time. But at the same time, they probably wonder, like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Okay, I understand you're doing this technique of visualization. But what potion are you drinking? Potion? What potion? What uh, secret sauce are you taking? <laughs> okay. What's your marabou's phone number? <laughs> your witch doctor's number? Actually, there is none of them. I don't have a witch doctor or a marabou. Uh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a Catholic Christian. I go to church every Sunday and sometimes uh, during the week, uh, Thursday, I usually go to church. So I pray the same God that they pray and nobody else, nothing, no marabou. It's just sometimes uh, what I realize, I also realize that what even <clears throat> make me practice, not on my own, but uh, that what pushes me to practice is for example, in class, when some students who are slow learners usually get stuck somewhere and they want me to help them to solve certain equations, by solving, I usually practice too. So I usually get many people coming and trying to ask me, please, could you help me solve this? I'm stuck. I try to integrate, but it's not giving the derivative. It's not passing. So once I solve this, I also practice at the same time because once I'm teaching them, I also get better and better and better. That is also how I get uh, my good results. By the way, marabou means witch doctor in French. Um, and now the thing is that the reason I think it's dangerous is that a lot of times people think that you can only be successful in Africa if you have a witch doctor or some sort of other kind of magical spell or, or thing that is giving you supernatural powers. You cannot just do it through sheer talent or sheer hard work. And I think that is a very dangerous notion. Yeah, actually, majority of my classmates and peers, in fact, I usually, I practically spend my whole time with my friends I spend my whole time with them, so if I was having a witch doctor or something, they could have seen it, they could have seen how I could have been doing certain uh, bizarre stuff. But uh, we practically spend the same day together, even in the night, because when we study together, we usually even sleep in the one common room, and then uh, I don't understand why they think so, but I think uh, it's, fact, it's the mindset, it's the mindset of uh, Africans.
Now, about 80 or 90% of the people in Marwa, the region that you're from, are Muslim. Now, were you able to convert any of these people into Christianity after they see that, huh, Gaspar is doing really well in school, and he's a Christian. Maybe the secret is I just have to become a Christian so they convert? Oh, wow, no. I, <laughs> Muslims, they are they're having a very strong, very, very strong belief in their religion. So it, there is, this, that's true, some usually convert after maybe uh, experiencing a situation in their life where maybe a Muslim, a Christian helped or did something wonderful and then they, they were touched. But on just a normal circumstance or some, a situation like, let's say, because someone is uh, sharp or smart and then they convert because the person is smart and is a Christian, no, they are really not in that. And the second dangerous thing, so the first thing that's a very dangerous idea in Africa is this whole idea that witch doctors or kind of superstition and that kind of stuff is the key to becoming very successful either academically or economically. But the second dangerous idea that really irritates me in Africa is this, and this is reality, by the way, the, the first is just hocus pocus and it's you know BS. But, this, but the second idea is real, which is a lot of people actually bribe their teachers and bribe the administration to pass and do this kind of stuff and and so as a result when people like you who are honestly smart honestly hardworking, and honestly getting good grades it takes away from your accomplishment because other guys just pass because they slipped them some money yeah that's true especially in the universities that's very 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 common especially in the french universities but uh what differentiates me with them is that uh, I'm passionate about what I am doing. So I usually do it because I love it, not because I want to get good grades and pass and leave the class. I'm passionate because I want to develop something out of the knowledge I will gain. So I usually go extra miles to go and make research and even learn more from what I usually get in class. 80% of what I learn is uh, on my own not even from uh, what the teacher gives me. In some African countries I've been to, I mean, I've heard stories like if you don't buy the professor's book, he will just not pass you. Yes, that's very, very true. Uh, like in Guaykele, University, University of Yaoundé one, some teachers usually try to create business out of their teaching uh, uh, period. Like, for example, they usually sell their own textbooks or uh, workbooks where if you don't buy them, you will not pass his subject. So he will usually get, give exams that are inside the textbook, and he will ask you people to go and do it as homework, and it will count for your CA or for your exams. So he will you look for all means for you to buy the books. What's another technique that they use to, in order to extract money from their students? Uh, they usually <clears throat> organize certain uh, sessions, like catch-up classes, where they usually... Um, give questions that may come in exams before time. Like every person who is coming will pay for the catch-up class and then they will treat certain topics or certain questions that will definitely come in the exam. So students usually come in mass to attend it because they know in advance that they will gain, they will gain exam questions and then they will go and pass well for the exam. So they usually pay for, to attend such classes. And, and I'll... I'm sure you've heard of stories where women are sometimes harassed. 
Yes, uh, some women, yes, uh, especially lazy ones who are, who need quick marks, they usually sometimes go and uh, uh, offer themselves to the lecturers, to professors in exchange of marks, in exchange of uh, maybe uh, good grades in class. So th despite the fact that they, they never show up in campus, but they usually end up having the best grades. So they usually offer themselves to professors, to lecturers in order to gain marks. And some lecturers usually, uh, they usually, they are the one who in instead create this uh, situation, like when they they give a, a poor grade to a student, to a lady, and then when the lady come to, re to, to revendicate, they will tell the lady that, no, if you want, there is another method where you can uh, get better grades, and so this is the method you need to offer yourself to me, and then I'll give you better marks. Now, have you ever been a subject of unfair treatment by a teacher because you didn't give him something that he wanted, either like money or, or any other kind of thing that you didn't just cooperate with him, so then you got punished and you got a bad grade unfairly? Did that ever happen to you? Uh, hopefully, no. Uh, not, not even once, because I always make sure, because since I know all these things exist, I always make sure I'm discreet and then I avoid uh, certain things. I avoid challenging the teacher and I avoid uh, trying to do certain things. I just solve my questions quietly and give his, uh, his answer sheet quietly and then uh, he marks it and he gives my grades. I don't actually go and become too close to him because of, uh, in order to avoid certain things. So I make sure I'm discreet. It's funny because what you just said is almost the opposite of how we are in America because if you, in America, challenge the teacher, especially if you challenge it in a good way, they will actually reward you for that. If, especially if you catch an error, they will be impressed. They're like, you know, oh, actually Venus is not the uh, third planet from the sun. It's actually the second, by the way, professor. And, you know, just to give you an example, but the point is is that you, if you go to his uh, study his private sessions and ask him tough questions. All this kind of interaction is rewarded, but in many African countries, it seems there's a much more passive. Yes, uh, we are reluctant to challenge teachers because here in Africa, the mentality of professors is that when you are challenging him, it's like you are downgrading him and uh, then uh, you are showing as if he knows nothing. So uh, they, they usually have the, pers the, the ideology like as if they, they, are, they have the monopoly of knowledge, that they are the, the king, the, in fact they are the gods of knowledge. So when they come in class and then they are speaking, they don't want any person to downgrade them, to tell them that, uh, excuse me sir, you are, they, <clears throat> there is an error in what you are saying, this or that they will hate you and they may cause you not to even go to the next class by downgrading all your grades and then making you fail all through for many years. So majority of the time we avoid uh, challenging lecturers because <clears throat> they are not uh, friendly to that and they don't want it, they don't like it. So that's the mentality they have. And this is a very dangerous idea for the society because if the society grows up in a culture where the person who's in power cannot be questioned, then all of a sudden uh, stupid ideas can continue to exist for no good reason. Yeah, exactly. That's the reason why some students are just accepting what any information, any data that the teacher gives, 
they would say it is the teacher, so he's, he's always correct. So even though sometimes they don't want to go extra mile, they always absorb what the teacher gives them. But uh, I'm not for that. I'm not. I'm not for that direction because I usually learn further. And if the teacher is wrong, I won't tell him he's wrong. But I will tell some of his closest friends or some of the people whom he like, who may in in a quiet and private place to go and tell him, and maybe he may understand. Because if I correct him and we are not close, he will feel embarrassed and he may uh, dislike me. So I, I don't want to have problems with lecturers or professors because I want to challenge them. So, but I know and I always go and tell my friends, this is this place, this is the proof, here is not correct. So this is the, cor the correction. But since the lecturer is uh, dogmatic, you don't want sometimes for you to change or challenge him. It's good you just tell it to him or so that he can see if it is correct. He, can, he may rectify it for the next uh, session, for the next group of students. Now, if the people listening to this podcast were actually going to, let's say, attend 10 classes randomly in, you know, all over Cameroon, would you say that most of the time the students are silent in the class or is there a lot of hand raising and people asking questions, that kind of stuff? Or is it just the lecturer just lecturing the whole time and everybody's quietly taking notes? Majority of the time, the lecturer is lecturing the whole time. People are t quietly taking notes, but sometimes... People usually ask questions too, especially uh, situations where they are completely lost and they are not having any clue of what the lecturer is doing or going. So they may stay for some time, they may be patient to see if they will get in line, but if still they don't get in line, one or two people will get up and try to stop the teacher and tell him that uh, they are not in, in line with him. And are those students who ask the quote-unquote stupid questions and they end these innocent questions that they don't really know, they're completely lost, are they punished by the class? In other words, does everybody giggle and say, oh my God, you can't believe you don't know what 2 plus 2 is? Yeah, majority of the time, yeah, that's also another problem. When a student asks a question, especially if it is a stupid question, they will bully him and then they will make fun of him and the student will feel very ashamed and next time he or she will refuse automatically to ask any question. He will prefer to stay with the question and then maybe go and make personal research, but he will not more ask again. There's a lot of cheating going on also in school. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Even when I was in the university, I had friends who were, because they, they were just, they are just looking for grades and then certificates in order to go to the next class. They are not passionate. They usually follow their friends. When their friend is doing, is in software engineering and he heard software engineering pays, he or she will also jump and say he, was, he want to do software engineering and then end up just going to school for the sake of his friend or because his friends are also doing software engineering. They are not passionate, so they, they, won't, they will not go and be looking, making research, understanding the course. They end up cheating, like coming with their smartphones, with the lessons inside, the internet, hiding, of course, so that the invigilator should not see, and then they cheat, and then a lot of cheating is going on. Only people, few, the few people who are passionate really understands uh, the, the lectures and then go extra miles, they usually write without cheating. They, 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 they answer the questions without cheating. 
And this really points to some of the challenges that Africa has for its educational system. I mean, you don't even know where to start. That's very true. <laughs> and it also, counseling, there is, uh, we have few counseling in our universities, in our high schools. So students tend to get confused, get to follow what their father is saying. So they don't follow their passion. They end up just following because my dad wants me to become an engineer, so I will be an engineer. Meanwhile, the person is passionate about designing. Another person will love to do medicine, but the father will say, no, go and do uh, aeronautics. It's majority of the time is the father choosing what the children is doing instead of the child choosing what he or she is passionate in. I've been to all 54 African countries, and everywhere I go, they seem to have the same saying repeated all, all over the time. It's not me that made this up, but I think you've probably heard the saying yourself. I don't know. I was te- I'm going to test you out. Complete the following sentence. If you want to hide something from an African... Uh, put it inside a book, a textbook. <laughs> There you go. So this is such a common saying. And in fact, you know, we just met and, and I didn't know if you know the sentence, but it's something that is repeated. Africans have told me this everywhere. I, they told me in Togo, they told me in Burkina Faso, in South Africa, everywhere. I've heard this saying. Um, and it's very depressing. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very, very true because uh, majority of the times... Africans, we don't really get interested into reading textbooks. We find it boring. And then, despite the fact that I know, personally, I know the importance of textbooks, I know that they reveal a lot of incredible secrets and uh, a lot of knowledge inside. But uh, from our... We were brought up, our parents and everyone, we were brought up like that so the trend usually continues like that me personally in my personal research i prefer to stream youtube videos rather than uh, having a textbook for example on python programming i prefer to watch um, udemy videos on python programming the complete uh, uh, set of videos rather than looking for a textbook uh, in python and reading Interesting. So even you, the peak of intellectual, even you, you prefer the video over the textbook. But part of that, I think, is because you are obviously, as you said yourself, a visual learner. Yes, yes. I love visual learning because uh, when I see what I I want to learn, I learn it fast and I can easily uh, recall it anytime. Now, listen, there's uh, Americans and Europeans, they don't really like textbooks anybody. I mean, there's very few societies that I can think of that actually love textbooks. But what I'm talking about is something more deeper in the fact that Africans just don't read any books. They don't even read novels. They don't read. If you sit in a bus with 50 people in the bus, not one human being is reading. If, you, if you're sitting at the bus station, we're waiting for the train or for the bus or anything like that. Any place where Africans are idle and they don't have anything to do. I mean, of course, they might be reading something on their phone or tablet, maybe, but they don't have a book. Um, and to me, that is different than, let's say, not liking textbooks. Very few people don't like textbooks, but in Africa, you just don't see any reading except Quran or the Bible or some sort of religious text. I mean, do you agree with this? Yes, correct. I agree with this because, as I said, uh, we were brought up like that and we don't have the the self uh, the self-excitement to, to 
go get a novel and start reading because we find it uh, it's a type bizarre or boring to just be reading we usually uh, read things that we heard are good for example maybe some, something that we've been referred to let's say a novel like pride and prejudice where they say oh that novel is nice someone have been speaking about it that is nice the story there especially that part that elizabeth bennett has done this that so that is how someone will get interested otherwise just in no reason someone going getting a, a novel to read no I think one of the problems also is that African society is such an incredibly social society and there's a belief that if you're sitting alone, you must be depressed or sick or in a bad mood or something negative is associated with you being alone in a room by yourself. There's something negative about that. And so reading by its very nature is a solitary activity. You might be in a room full of people reading, but effectively you're alone. You're not interacting with somebody. And in Africa, I think for most African societies, they see that as as kind of a negative thing to be all by yourself. Yes, that's correct. Because in Africa, we love uh, we love um, uh, communities. We love communities like meeting, discussing, exchanging ideas. Despite the fact that we don't read, but any information that one person, if one person knows an information, obviously everybody will know that information because we like sharing, discussing, social. We like everything. But if someone is sitting alone, as you said, is a form of negative aspect, like he's so he's sorrowful or he's maybe bereaved or something negative happened to him. So uh, sitting alone, lonely, is re- usually assigned and um, uh, uh, assigned to negativity, like something sorrowful happening to the person. So how are you going to cope as you go and pursue, let's say, your PhD and things like that, where you're going to eventually have to be by yourself? I mean, from my understanding, you didn't spend a whole lot of time studying when you were uh, going to school, when you were smaller and younger. Um, but eventually, at some point, you can't all, you're going to eventually have to sit in a room by yourself. Are, are you going to be able to do it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have any problem with that, especially sometimes I read it, I do read, especially for tough subjects that I have no clue and the lecturer is rushing on the, on the topic. I usually go and open a lot of textbooks, one after the other, ex, uh, for sure, uh, digital textbooks on the computer. I open, I try to understand, especially a topic that I love but I can't understand. Maybe I don't have any picture of it. I can't figure out how it functions. I usually go and go get mad and open every sort of textbook on the internet, videos, scroll everywhere in order to understand it. Where do you want to get your PhD in? In artificial intelligence. Okay, and then what would you like to do in AI? Uh, preventive medicine. Uh, yes, talking of pre- preventive medicine, I already started working on something. Um, it's uh, an application. It's already we already have a prototype. Uh, it's an application called Diagnose. It's uh, a mobile app which is having an AI engine to prevent, to diagnose, prevent, and predict respiratory diseases in Africa. Okay, and this is available on Android and iOS. Uh, Android is Android. iOS maybe we will be we will uh, code it soon, but for the moment, it's available on Android. At the end of 2008, you might have it on iOS? 
2000 yes at the end of 2018 yes did i say eight <laughs> meant 2018 sorry <laughs> we are back to the future um and so um and so tell me a little bit more about this app and what will happen for people by is it going to help people detect that they're going to have problems down the road that they're going to have cancer okay uh yes uh, the application is actually um uh is actually under construction we we've, uh, we have the prototype but it's not yet the prediction is not very accurate. We want a prediction of at least 80% uh, accuracy. For example, if you have certain symptoms like headache, fever, uh, let's say cough, uh, coughing blood, spotum, and the rest, night chill, and the rest. These are common symptoms of TB, for example. But uh, some people usually assign certain bizarre symptoms to witchcraft and the rest because they are reluctant to go to the hospital and they are ashamed that maybe when they go there, they will find they are HIV positive or they are maybe having a bizarre sickness. So they usually go to the witch doctor which, who usually tell them that it's your uncle or your aunt who, is, uh, who, want to, uh, down, who want to kill you. But if they have a tool that is private, they can just send text, uh, put the symptoms they have, and then detect the specific disease they have. And the application is having a, a series of specialists. For example, if you put your symptoms and you realize you are sick of TB, we have pulmonologists, people who are uh, long disease specialists who can help you handle it. You can book an appointment on the application where you can quietly and privately see a long specialist who will help you solve your problem and heal your sickness. It's interesting because the medical stuff is a private issue. Also in America, a lot of people are afraid that their medical data will be shared with insurers or for, with their employer and all this other stuff, and that will help hurt them get jobs or insurance in the future. So there's very much privacy issues with medical stuff. But what's interesting is what you're talking about is that there's also privacy issues, but it's a different issue. In other words, people are like, oh no, I have to, I'm going to be forced to go see this witch doctor and I don't really want to see him, but I got to do it because if I go to the real doctor, I'm going to be laughed at. Exactly. That's true. That's how, this is the perception in Africa. So majority of the time, the people usually uh, go and see the witch doctor because they, they know that it's private and because here in uh, in uh, the doctors they sometimes they can be private but sometimes they are not private because majority of the time they work hand in hand with nurses who are not that friendly and they gossip yes they gossip and so the witch doctor is also cheaper sorry is the witch doctor also cheaper than a regular medical doctor yes i think uh, what usually bring them to witch doctors is because of the price very, very expensive cost of consultation and diagnosis here. And also, sometimes, what they also discourage people, I've been uh, uh, to hospitals here many times where I realized long queues of uh, lines, people are waiting to take consultancy because we have only one specialist. Few, few specialists exist here in, in Cameroon. So we have long queues of line. You can go early in the morning, let's say 5 a.m., and you, you take diagnosis uh, at 1 1 p.m. So it's usually stressful and boring. Sometimes, despite the fact that you find a specialist, the specialist is not competent. He's giving you erroneous uh, consultancy and giving you diseases. I have a friend who was diagnosed and he said he was having hepatitis. But when he went to other hospitals, 
they said no he's not having hepatitis so i see lack of uh, uh, they don't have compete we don't have competent doctors and errors human errors a lot of human errors exist so this all this uh, uh, pushed me to design this application called diagnose to reduce all this uh, and all this leads to a very high mortality mortality rate in africa from the national institute of statistics around 50 people die every week from respiratory diseases and the global report from world health organization is saying around 10.2 million people die from uh, respiratory diseases each year yeah that's depressing news and i mean there's some false diagnosis going on in the united states as well but i don't think it's at the level that you have in africa i mean one thing though that a lot of americans i didn't have insurance for my five years in africa because insurance to get global insurance will cost at least $200 a month or something like that or maybe $100 a month but you would never spend that much in most places in Africa assuming you're not getting sick every month so what how much does a doctor diagnosis cost here in Africa versus a witch doctor okay the doctor diagnosis in uh, for example in uh, hospital like for example what I had uh, around uh, 15,000 CFA so that's about $30 yes 15,000 francs CFA. And that gives you, for $30, you're getting about, uh, you're getting the, the actual consultation as well as treatment? No, just consultations. Okay. And then what about the witch doctor? How much does that cost? The witch doctor, even with 1,000, 1,500, the money he will use to, to buy his cola nuts and maybe some of his small uh, ingredients for his uh, witchcraft. So... So about $3, let's say. It's, so basically, it's about 10 times more expensive to go to see a traditional doctor versus a witch doctor. Yes, exactly. So that can see the appeal of a witch doctor. And, and of course, the placebo effect is alive and well in this whole issue. So as a result, people think that the witch doctor is actually performing miracles when, in fact, it's just a placebo effect in action. Exactly. exactly. So this... Um, Artificial intelligence application is something that you... It's called diagnosis? Yes, it's called diagnosis. Okay, and, and it'll be available later in 2018. Yes, yes. And then now you've... Let's go move on and talk about other countries in Africa because one of the perception... We've been throwing around the term like in Africa and Africa and Africa as if it's one big uh, city. Um, but in fact, it's 54 countries and they each have their own little personality. And you've been to about five countries. You've been, uh, can you name some of the countries? They're mostly, they're all located in West and Middle Africa. So Gabon, which is next to Cameroon and a bunch of West African countries. Oh, and Chad, you went to, so that's also Middle Africa. And then you, where else you've been to? Benin, uh, Togo, Accra in Ghana, uh, Chad, uh, Gabon, Yes. So that's about five countries. And yeah, again, like I said, West Africa and Nigeria as well. Yes, and Nigeria. Okay. And so in your travels, in your experience, try to help the listeners here kind of understand the different personality of some of these things. Could you name me, for example, some cultural thing that you saw in any of these countries that kind of surprised you? And you said, whoa, that would never happen in Cameroon, for example. Can you think of something that, that, would, that had that impression, whether it be in Gabon, Nigeria, Togo? Okay, uh, I think I saw something in chat that I was like, wow. <laughs> in chat, for example, uh, when a group of men is sitting down, a lady, when he's passing, she removes her, uh, her shoes, everything, cover her head, and 
turn her face so that in fact hide her face and pass like a like in fact by scrolling just going uh, quietly so she don't make any noise like as if she was she wanted to she stole something and she was running away quietly so i don't know the the men and women is like two different worlds so women must respect they give a high, very very high respect to men until a point where they don't usually sit on this on the same place with men and they don't usually uh, eat uh, where men are yeah i saw something similar in benin as well as chad where i remember a woman now granted this guy that guy i was speaking with was a pretty senior man in the village or in the town so he was not just any old man he was a pretty respectful person uh but what happened was she came in it's an old lady too i mean this woman was like 65 or 70 or something like that and she decided to when she got in she not only took off her shoes but then she bowed down completely she got down on her knees and bowed down all the way down prostrate prone to him and then got up and then left yes exactly this is very very common that is a form of respect to to men and a form of superiority and then what's interesting is that Chad, of course, is really very close to where you grew up, Marwa. Marwa is the extreme north of Cameroon, so you only have to drive about 100 kilometers and you're in Chad. Yes, even in Marwa, in the past, uh, these things used to happen, but uh, now people are already with the advent of universities and uh, uh, higher institutes. Uh, it has reduced, it has greatly influenced the population and these uh, beliefs and this. Uh, these uh, uh, characteristics are not more seen in, in the region. What struck you now? Togo, Benin, and Ghana are all, and, and Nigeria, all four of them are all connected. They're all touching each other. Um, one way, you know, you can go from one to the next. What struck you about that part of, you know, West Africa? What did you find surprising there? Okay, uh, in, uh, in Togo, for example, um, the women they 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 are okay they they are not as uh, submissive as uh, the women in uh, chat but they are respectful they don't disturb and they are quiet uh, they are just normal they are just like uh, cameroon uh, women uh, same with nigeria and uh, nigerian women are very instructive they are um, literate so they actually uh, know what they do and they are updated uh, women so i i did not really saw a clear distinction between ghanaian women and uh, nigerian women but they nearly do the same thing now there's a belief also among many francophone countries especially in west africa that all the anglophone countries were much better off after colonialism than and the francophone countries all got screwed um is this true is this something? Yes, that's very, very, very true. Okay, so why is that? Because to me, it's always baffling that why people think that the Francophone countries got screwed and the Anglophone countries got... Because when I think of Anglophone countries, I don't just think of Ghana and Nigeria, but I also think of Sierra Leone, the Gambia, and Liberia. These three countries in West Africa are pretty poor. So I don't understand why people look up and think that the British did such a better job than the French. Yes, uh, the ideology is that uh, the, in Anglophone countries, um, they don't have the, the belief, they don't have this mindset of uh, 
uh, avoiding other people grow if you are a leader and you want uh, your peers to to be leaders in anglophone countries they have it's very popular people usually help others to get uh, to their level or more but in francophone countries it's the complete reverse if you are a leader you want to just be the only leader and you don't want any other person to reach that place and then any person who is striving or trying to be coming up with force you try to eliminate the person so that is the ideology that is usually happening in francophone countries with respect to anglophone countries I hear what you're saying, but I just I'm still not convinced just because, you know, I look at Liberia, they had leaders that didn't want to give up Charles Taylor, you had before against uh, Samuel Doe. And then before that, of course, all the Americo Liberians who controlled Liberia for a long time. Sierra Leone has been a mess of, of people who didn't want to let go. So I, I now Ghana has had a democracy, Nigeria, you know, they've had other issues where they've had so many coup d'etats, they've had about at least five coup d'etats. So, you know, what do you think? Uh, is it really that much better in Anglophone? Uh, yes. In, uh, in Anglophone regions, for example, the colonial uh, masters usually help them do something, like create something on their own. Like in, in um, there's one saying which uh, we, are say, we have in our country saying that it's good to teach someone how to catch a fish rather than just giving him fish, fish every time. So the Anglophone colonial masters usually, they helped their, their countries where they colonized to, to catch fish. But in the Francophone uh, colonial masters, this is the reverse. They were giving the fishes so that the country should always depend on them. Do you think that today <coughs> most Francophone Africans still really dislike France? Yes, 90%. Myself, I'm a Francophone. I dislike France, and uh, I don't like what France is doing to my country. Why? Because uh, my country is rich. It's having a lot of uh, natural resources. If we had a... We, imagine, we don't even have one industry that is producing... Uh, 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 computers, for example, and uh, very, um, and we are instead buying computers from the outside, uh, from other countries. From we are importing computers, but why not creating a company or an industry that will build homemade computers? That will be great because it will provide job opportunities to the local population, and we will not more depend on uh, other countries but we are always depending on other countries and this is not good for me but, but at the same time i mean first of all i don't think even the united states makes computers anymore i think we just we design the computers but they're all made in asia especially china and uh, i don't think there's any african country i mean certainly nigeria has a lot of resources just like cameroon but they're not doing shit all they do is produce their oil but they don't do anything so and they're an anglophone country so why are the francophone countries so angry at France and uh, sorry the the francophone country so angry at France I just don't get it yes uh, France always like to benefit from African countries if France is proposing something let's say a deal of ten dollars it means the African will have two dollars inside France will have at least eight dollars so France is always uh, thinking about uh, themselves. They don't think about Africans. But, but 
that's what any country has to do. I mean, it's kind of like the job of the political leaders to think about themselves. I mean, they're negotiating. Donald Trump goes to Korea. He's not going to be thinking so much about the Koreans. He wants to get the best deal he can possibly get for the United States. Every political leader has got to do that. And so it's the job of the Africans. As long as the French are not coming with guns and pointing to you and say, you must accept this deal where I get $8 and you get $2, unless they're doing that, and I don't think they are, but unless they're doing that, it seems like the, the, the Africans are willingly accepting this deal. And if it's such a bad deal, then why don't they go shop it around and get the Chinese to buy it or the Russians or the Americans or some other guy? I think uh, it is also attached to a certain level of political uh, uh, ties. Like, let's say it may be a, a deal, another secret deal with the political leaders of African countries that uh, maybe if you don't accept this deal, uh, this, this, this will happen. Maybe because certain deals, myself, who is not really having a high level of understanding in political issues, I won't accept, but the African leaders usually accept. So I'm still trying to understand why they are accepting, despite the fact that it is on their disadvantage. Yeah, and I, I agree with you what you touched on there, which is the idea that maybe the the France the, the French are bribing these leaders or sending money to their Swiss bank accounts and doing something else. But that's not the fault of the I mean it's partially the fault of the French, but I mean in the end it's it's the African leaders who were elected or you know <laughs> taken over somehow by the by the French. In other words, the people of Africa in every country they have the power to overthrow their leaders if they really 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 want to. Um, and so Paul Bia has been here for over 40 years, but there's just not enough people who really are sick and tired of him to overthrow him. If they were, they would do a coup d'etat or they do things like what Nigeria does. Yeah, exactly. The problem is here in uh, in Cameroon and every other African countries if they see how, uh, if they just have, they have secret services that are all, all over. If they see how you are trying to, to climb up in order to, to become a resistance to the, to the political party, they will soon get rid of you. So any person who is trying to do some, something in, in disadvantage of uh, the political leader in power, you just lost your life or you just, they will get, in one way or the other, they will get rid of you. So nobody wants to lose their life. So they usually stay quiet and accept uh, whatever is happening in the country. That sounds so much like your school, where you're basically, <laughs> the professor has this stupid idea, exactly. but you better just... <laughs> it starts right there. It starts right there. Because majority of the time, the same people are being elected ministers and the rest. So it starts right there. This blinding trust of authority. Exactly. Speaking about uh, uh, school again, Genius Awards, uh, or specifically, there's this big movement uh, now about trying to find the next Einstein in Africa, or not the next, but the first Einstein in Africa. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, uh, EMS, uh, African, there is an initiative, a school called EMS, African Institute of Mathematical Sciences. I applied, uh, results are not yet out, but I applied for a master's uh, in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, in South Africa and in Cameroon here. So I'm still waiting for the results, but I'm really eager to, to be in that school. And then there is an initiative called uh, NEI, Next Einstein Initiative. They believe, they strongly believe that the next Einstein will be in Africa. So hopefully they will find one. <laughs> okay, so tell me, the AIMS is in South Africa? 
Yes, M is uh, MC is uh, all over. They they have branches in Africa, in Rwanda, in Ghana, in South Africa, in Senegal, and in Cameroon, and maybe in other countries too. Okay, and then your idea is that if you get a scholarship, you'll be able to go to and get your master's or PhD there. Yes. Okay, and if you don't get that, then what? Uh, I will still be trying to fight and do my jobs because my parents depend on me my parents are old and then they they usually they barely work so they usually depend on me i have a bsc so i need to work and partially help them with electricity bills and the rest so i will be doing part-time as well as doing self-studies as i've been doing so i'll continue and developing my own projects well why are you responsible for your parents because you have what eight siblings Yes, but uh, <clears throat> my other brothers, some are not working, so they're just wandering around, while others are I'm around. I have three brothers, elder brothers, and the rest are my junior uh, brothers and sisters. So my first elder brother, he's just uh, he's not working. He's just he's just having some small jobs and feeding himself, so he can't really help the parents. The, I'm the only intellectual person in the house who really went far with education, so um, I'm the only person whom my parents are mostly putting an eye on, so I need to give back to my parents and help them. I can't see them suffering and stay quiet, so... What are you going to be doing in Germany? You're going there for how many days and for what reason? Okay, uh, I applied for the Heldenberg Laureate Forum where they were choosing 200 uh, most promising researchers in the world. Uh, They were choosing mostly PhD people, students, but uh, I'm not a PhD student, I'm a BSc student, but uh, they they requested for my academic background and the research I'm working on. So they were interested to see a non-PhD person working in that field and as uh, and passionate about what he or she is doing. So they selected me among the PhD so that I can uh, go and assist and participate in the forum where they will be awarding innovators and creators, inventors too, like um, the person who created uh, uh, the the Defi Hellman will be there. Uh, the famous person in cryptography. He's one of my uh, idols. <laughs> I like him. And many other inventors too will be there. They'll be awarding them their Turing Award, ACME Award, and the rest. So I'll be there to assist to see how it goes. When do you go? Uh, on September 23rd, 22nd, 23rd. For how long? For one week. Oh, that's going to be a good experience. Your first time out of Africa. Yes. Great. And then tell me about... I'm just worried about... Trying to find the next Einstein, I think, you know, if you think of Einstein, this was a guy who had a super visual, creative mind. He, he, he looked at the world not in numbers, but in images and, and pictures, just like you. Um, so in that sense, you guys have a lot in common. But one of the things that I think is going to hurt Africa's ability to find that next Einstein is Einstein also had another quality, which was questioning authority. It's thinking out of the box. And the problem in so many African societies is that people think only in the box. 
this is something that's going to be very hard for them to innovate. To innovate, you have to get out of what your ancestors did and, in fact, reject your ancestors. This is something that's going to make it very hard, I think, for Africans to innovate. What do you think? Yes, I think you are correct, you are right, but uh, that will not last for long because uh, with, the, with many boot camps and many, many, many sessions, uh, conferences and the rest with many people, with many uh, innovators, this will actually help change the mindset of many Africans. Myself, I'm already in that uh, move. I, I won't uh, accept certain things. I would love to, 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 to think out of the box and I would love to do things that are, uh, if they are good and in contrast, in contrary with what the, the, my ancestors were doing, I will do it because I know that it will be for the good. Uh, it, even if I will sacrifice myself so that the next generation of people will think, will have the freedom to think out of the box, to question the authority, I'll do it. Speaking about thinking out of the box, how about a really radical idea? Do you know anybody who's an atheist? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not one atheist that you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm a bit discreet. I usually I'm in my own part of the world, so <laughs> so they might exist, but they're hidden. Yes, yes, okay. yes. <laughs> you just don't know. No, because it's something that's interesting to me. Like a lot of African, well, there's some Africans that are kind of nationalistic, and they're just like they want to reject everything that the white people ever did or gave for them, and that kind of stuff. It's just everything is going to be Africa for Africans, African solutions for African problems, and they're very strong about this stuff. And yet, these ardent, strong nationalists who kind of reject everything that's out of foreign, not of Africa, they are still believing in these religions that were created out of Africa. They and, and they're in fact some of the most biggest defenders and believers of it. They are the strongest defenders of Islam and Christianity. And yet, you would think that these passionate people would say, okay, if you're going to reject everything, then why don't you become an animist like your ancestors? Yeah, actually, uh, th that was one of the stuff, that was one of the beliefs that uh, led to the creation of uh, Boko Haram, if you know. Uh, it was common in my region because we were bordered to Nigeria, so they usually threaten, they usually come and bring people, they usually say they reject uh, foreign uh, education, everything that comes from the Western world, so they usually reject it. They say they want only African things, African beliefs, African solutions, so that is the ideology behind it. And the funny thing is, of course, Boko Haram claimed to be Muslims. <laughs> yes, yes. And the funny thing too, they usually they use guns which have been fabricated by Western. So it's I don't know. It's a whole. It's really very very funny. I think they use electricity too. Yes, yes. They use computers and the devices that have been fabricated outside of the wire. They're not using spears and. They use Twitter. <laughs> yeah, they use Twitter too to twist their their massacs. <laughs> Do you think Boko Haram has a future? Oh, no, I don't think so. It's not having... I think it's already dying because they are already killing the sources of uh, the, the activists. So it's already in the fall. They are falling. Okay, and so you think that it's going to continue? The trend is eventually they're going to dissipate? Uh, I think they will, they will disappear soon because the, the government, the government of Nigeria and the government of Cameroon, in collaboration with, uh, the, with Chad, they are working harder, harder and harder to eradicate them. 
But here's my worry. You know, you have Ghana, which has a fertility rate of four. You have Burkina Faso, fertility rate of six. Niger has the highest fertility rate in the world, seven, seven children per woman. And Nigeria is around, almost around five. Uh, Chad, I think, is around four or something like that. And a lot of these countries are in the Sahel and in the Sahara where the resources, you have Lake Chad, which is shrinking as we speak, and yet the population is growing at such a strong, robust rate. And you come from a region that's part of the Sahel, which is the extreme north of Cameroon, where you have these dwindling resources. You have these uh, uh, chopping down more trees. There's only so much charcoal that they can make. And don't you think that this is a recipe for doom? Uh, yeah, I think... Now, uh, they are chopping, that's true, they are chopping trees for charcoal and the rest. Uh, these Sahel zones usually have a high uh, solar energy rate. Uh, uh, if uh, we are, I've been thinking on a solution in solar energy that can uh, uh, bring a lot of, because they are chopping this charcoal for domestic uh, uh, situation domestic uh, they want to yes they want to cook they want to have electricity and the rest so if we can use solar energy for all that uh, it will reduce the rate of uh, deforestation in this region so and uh, i have an idea maybe in the future uh, when i'll have the means and the expertise to create a, a school that will be high tech in marwa where we will be fabricating our own solar panels and because in Marwa the temperatures usually varies from 45, uh, 30 to 45 degrees. I have a friend who's listening to this podcast who will be listening to this podcast and he has $10 million to give you. What would you do with $10 million? Okay, uh, first of all, I'll create a school because there is no one school in uh, the Grand North Marwa, Garwa, Ngaundere, Kuseri. Despite the fact that these zones are the hottest and having the highest percent and solar energy uh, in this region. So if I can create a school, creating people, innovators, and these innovators who will create a ne the next generation of solar farms in these regions, we can uh, produce electricity that could... Uh, 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 sustain the whole country and even maybe export to Chad and the other countries, neighboring countries. So that's what I want. I could have, uh, I will do with the money. It is amazing how much solar energy is hitting. I mean, the, the temperatures there are regularly over 40 degrees Celsius, which is over 100 degrees, uh, 43 degrees Celsius is, I think, 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's, it's scorching, and yet solar panels, but they are coming. I mean, I do start seeing some solar panels out there, not so much in northern Cameroon, but I've seen them in other countries. Yes, uh, in northern Cameroon, it's really closed, uh, it's closed, especially in terms of technology and innovation. So the reason why I want to bring that in that region, I want to open that school, because uh, majority of the time even, uh, the people there are not literate. 90% or 80% of uh, uh, people here are illiterate. So they don't know about innovation. They don't know about solar energy. They are still wondering what are these things. So if there is a school where they can see their peers or their children designing actually things, solutions that will produce electricity, that will really change a lot in that region because 
many people usually give up because they don't have models, they don't have people who have done something, who have created something that uh, impact other people's lives, icons for the community, so that they can also have their kids or their friends also following that pattern to innovate and create innovators. Yeah, sometimes I go back and forth with my optimism and pessimism for Africa. I sometimes get very optimistic and, and, and see a really bright future, and other times I get so despondent and depressed. <laughs> I imagine the same thing happens to you sometimes. Yeah, 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 that's true. Uh, I, sometimes I'm also very, very depressed because uh, despite the effort that we usually, uh, I usually do, because sometimes there is one point in time in my life where when I finished Polytechnic, I finished my HND in Polytechnic, I went back to Marwa. I realized that that, that was the, the region, the time where Boko Haram was still very hot. Uh, excuse me, majority of uh, the teachers who were there fleed they went back to the southern part of Cameroon, so many students were having were not having teachers. So I took the courage and started teaching them uh, computer science, mathematics, uh, and uh, chemistry. So because these were the subjects that teachers were lacking. So since I knew these subjects, I studied it because I was also in an anglophone section. So I studied these subjects and I knew how I had. I still have my books and the rest. So I took the challenge and and taught them computer science and all these uh, subjects for at least for a certain period, such that uh, the, the 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 problem of the issue of Boko Haram stopped, reduced, not really stopped, but reduced. And teachers started coming back before I left. And uh, by then, too, I was giving them the negative aspects of terrorism, telling them about how it is destroying the region, how it is killing our friends and families, discouraging them about that aspect of terrorism, and encouraging them about the aspect of education, how education can change all this, can uh, give them. Because this Boko Haram usually recruit people around the borders, people, these people who are illiterate, and they brainwash them in the, with this ancient Quran saying, if you die by doing this, you'll be going directly to heaven and the rest. So because they are illiterate and they don't have any notion about all this, they usually accept. And that is why the issue, the issue of Boko Haram was existing, because of illiteracy. The main cause was illiteracy. Yeah, no, it's definitely true. And the the challenge, the other challenge is the brain drain. I wonder how much is that going to be an issue in the in this century, as people that are really smart like you, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to go to Germany. There's a good chance you might stay in Germany. In other words, or if you get some scholarship to the United States, you might stay in the United States. Or is is there a strong passion that you say, no, I don't care what happens, I'm always going to come back to Cameroon. Uh, yes. I love my country, actually, I love my country, and I want to see my country change, I want to see my country grow, I want to see my country become a developed country. So, definitely, I will go for the scholarship first, and maybe gain a lot of knowledge, experience, and expertise, and come back. My aim is not to stay there or live there, but my aim is to come back and develop my community, produce uh, leaders, produce innovators, produce people who will change our community and make it a better place. Until you meet a pretty German girl. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so anyway, um, the other thing is, uh, do you think that 
if the brain drain doesn't happen and you have control of Cameroon, I mean, do you think that it is really going to become developed as, let's say, Korea? Uh, I think it is the matter of mindset. If all of us unite and think creatively, we want, we, we need change, we need uh, development, we need uh, advancement, then this will happen. But if in case some people are thinking about innovation, about development, and the few people thinking about these things are being gotten rid of because the country usually uh, get rid of those type of people who distinguish themselves, who come out of the crowd and become to question the authority are being eliminated this situation will still be existing because few people will be uh, have willing to lose their life in such moves. Now, Cameroon is going to be having their elections, I think, in September, October this year. Now, Paul Bia has been there for over 40 years. The guy's 85 years old. He's going to die probably next Tuesday. But the point is, is that... <laughs> but let's... I mean, the point is that this guy... It's not going to last forever. And my question is, do you, what do you predict in your little crystal ball? What do you think is going to happen in this election? Do you just think everybody thinks he's just going to get reelected again? Or is there going to be a revolution? Uh, I can I already, because here, since many years now, we already, all the elections, we already know that he's going to win. Because no matter what, He's also he's always winning, so we already know that he will. Hold on, because you know you have the case of Burkina Faso, where the guy was in there for I think. Uh, well, first of all, there was the Gambia. The guy was there for twenty two years, and he was just kicked out last year. Then you had the case of um, in Burkina Faso. He was elected in nineteen ninety two or something like that, and then he was just kicked out last year. He was trying to change the constitution to give himself three terms. Anyway, he was kicked out, and then now he escaped off to, I think, uh, Cote d'Ivoire. Then you have Mugabe, in, who was 93 years old when he was finally kicked out. You have, um, uh, what's his name, from Gaddafi in Libya, who was in his twilight years, also kicked out in his twilight years. Mubarak in Egypt, in his 80s, finally kicked out. So all these are cases of African leaders, dictators, really, who are... In their twilight years, in their 80s, just like Paul Bia in Cameroon, and who were kicked out at the 11th hour. And so why can't we imagine that the same thing might happen in Cameroon? Yeah, it will probably happen. This oh, wait a second. You just said probably. You just before you said it won't happen. Probably or? Because um, here, for example, we have the results usually get uh, manipulated and then the same people manipulating the results are the same people handling the political aspect of the country. So no matter whatever votes results is uh, coming out, if results are being manipulated, so we, we already know the output of the manipulation. So that is the, the reason why I've been saying this. Yes, but the problem is that those manipulation has also happened in all those countries I just cited, Burkina Faso, Li Libya, and all these other So they had the manipulations too. Everybody knew the outcomes of those elections, but they reached a point where they just broke their back, and the country just said, enough is enough. Let's get this asshole out of here. So 
will that happen in Cameroon? Yes, yes, probably because he nobody is immortal. Nobody is um, nobody is how can I say can live for long for without dying. He 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 is also at his apex. So there is a high chance he can also get kicked off. Okay, so I mean, obviously he's not immortal, but he, but there's two different things. Either A, he gets kicked out before he dies, and obviously B, is, he lives there until the day he dies. But what do you assign the percentage chance that he will live, he will be president until he dies, versus the percentage chance that he will be, he will step down or get kicked out before he dies? What do you think? The percentage chance of him being the president until he dies is 90% and the percentage chance of him stepping down and leaving the throne or the the power to another person is 10%. Okay, so the bottom line is you still think this September or October, whenever you have your elections, he's still going to be around unless he gets hit by a taxi who's driving too fast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What about Ambazonia? Ambazonia, for those who don't know, is a separatist region in Cameroon. It's an Anglophone region. Cameroon, just to give you a quick history lesson, Cameroon used to be two countries uh, or two colonial powers. Uh, It was an Anglophone region, and then which was much smaller than the Francophone region. They voted upon independence to unite as one country. So the two Cameroons became one Cameroon. And they were bilingual in their constitution and in officially on paper everywhere they're supposed to be bilingual. But because Francophones are about 80-85% of the population, the Anglophone regions always feel like second-class citizens. And today, in 2018, they've had enough is enough, and the Anglophone region, which they're calling themselves Ambazonia, is trying to separate. It's the historical region that was once Anglophone in the pre-colonial, during the colonial time. It was the British colony, and now it's trying to become a separate nation. And my question to you Gaspar, is what do you think about that movement? Does it have any hope of success or not? Okay, uh, I think this uh, move is, uh, is it has been existing for a long time, but no possible action have been made. Finally, this 2018, where a real action was made by uh, uh, the English-speaking Cameroon. Uh, me having an Anglophone... Uh, background uh, having an microphone education i think in one part they are correct because uh, in the country all the national uh, all the biggest uh, schools like polytechnic and the rest are in french you can you cannot do all your education in english and then when you arrive university you go to a, a french university which is a complete different ideology a completely different system so how is it different first this the, the the way of teaching is different second the language is different because it's, everything is being taught in french third the the system is not uh, uh, they are using the lmd system they call it uh, lmd in 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 french where they they use uh, they use all data, and in fact, for multiple choice, the exams have been uh, given in multiple choice session, which is different from the Anglophone section, where you have essays and you have a, a, a multiple choice hybridized system. So this system is actually different for Anglophones to adapt. It's difficult. They cannot easily adapt f- uh, for them to continue their education. So they usually get stuck, and then 
that all that the few people who are lucky to work harder, extremely harder, usually get uh, out of the, 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 the problem. Is there any ministers that are Anglophone? Yes, uh, few. Okay. And what about in the parliament? Few still. Okay, and so, but they're just not at the representative. Maybe it's one, two, three percent versus the actual population is maybe more like 10, 15, 20 percent. Yes, yes. So this is, so, but do you think it's going to fly? I mean, it just seems to me, and like, to me, I just don't understand it. It's like, okay, let's just imagine in this paradise little world that Amazonia gets created. To me, like, I just don't see this country, uh, like, it's just going to be another poor African country. I don't get it. Yeah, actually, uh, they are thriving, thriving for their independence. That's true because they are angry. But I don't think uh, it will hold as a country or alone on its own because uh, it is a very small part of Cameroon and uh, they usually depend on many other things here in Cameroon on, for, from other regions, especially meat in uh, northern Cameroon. They depend on for uh, they depend on northern Cameroon for meat and other things from other regions. So I think them standing alone would be very, very difficult for them and they, they would really be poor for, for some times unless they find other strategies to improve on their standards of living. I'm going to, we're going to wrap this up with a session where I'm going to talk about the 10 things that are good traits that Africans have and 10 bad traits that Africans have. This is based, I wrote this list based on consultation with many, many different Africans, people, ex, both expats as well as people who live here, um, every, everything, and just from my own observation. And I want to share this list with the listeners as well as with you, Gaspar, to try to get your feedback on it, to tell me where you think I'm wrong. And I'm not like your professors. I actually like it when people challenge me. So I want you to say... Francis, you are full of shit. Okay? Can you say it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so feel free to disagree with me, and I don't expect you to agree. In fact, when I show this list, a lot of people, you know, they have certain issues. Okay, so here, let's start with the positive, the 10 good things that Africans have. Now, you've been to about five African countries, so you, and you watch a lot of the media and your television, and you should have a sense of the whole continent to at least some extent. Number one, that they're patient. Yeah. Number two, sharing and, and solidarity. Yes. Three, optimism. Uh, yes. Four, sense of humor. Yes, yes, yes. I didn't hear you laugh. <laughs> Number five, um, easily satisfied, kind of easygoing people, very resilient. Uh, not too quite, not too really. Okay, so you don't think they're easygoing, they're uptight people like Germans? Uh, it depends on actually, it depends, it depends. Okay, so give me an example of where they're not easygoing. Maybe uh, like male-female relations? Yes, male-female relations, for example. Or, for example, um, in, uh, for example, in universities, when, it, when a lecturer comes in class and the lecturer is teaching shit, these the, the students, they will not actually uh, accept those shit. They will tell, they will, in one way or the other, they will manifest. They will manifest because they will not accept this shit. And they will, sometimes they will even insult the teacher. They will say, oh, you are, you are giving us shit. You are not give, teaching well, this, this, that, that. So they won't always accept 
what is not good, like this uh, wrong stuffs. Wait a second, but you're totally contradicting what you said earlier in the podcast where you were talking about how professors hate being questioned even for the most minor little things. And here you have an entire manifestation going on, a revolution against them. How, how does that work? Yes, uh, they usually do it in a hidden way, like someone putting his head under the table and speaking aloud. Oh, they're all that is shit. Don't come and teach us shit. <laughs> These are people who are fed up, people who are like stranded and they, are, they usually hide. They don't expose themselves and stand up and boldly say it. They hide and then they say it. If not, like in normal circumstances, they will never show up. They will hide and usually say it at a certain level where they are extremely annoyed. Okay. So, so not necessarily always easygoing, um, resilient. Yeah, it's questionable. It's, uh, yeah, it's questionable. Easily satisfied, huh? Uh, not really. Okay, so qu point number five there, you've, you put a maybe on a question mark there. But the other four points you kind of s uh, support. Let's go through six through number 10. So number six was kind of, they live in the moment. They're very good at just enjoying the moment. Yes, yes. Okay, and then number seven, um, forgiving. Uh, questionable still. Interesting, because to me, you know, a lot of people ask me, has Africa changed you in any kind of way? And I think the thing that Africans taught me more than anything else is forgiveness. In other words, learning how to forgive the others. Because Africans, in my opinion, because they're one of the few societies and the few continents that really recognize that people are imperfect and they make mistakes all the time. And so I think... Africans are, they're forgiving you. You're late, you forgive. You don't pay on time, you forgive. You, you don't do what you say you're going to do, you forgive. To me, it's just like constant, whereas other societies, they are intolerant of errors and mistakes and, and shortcomings. Oh, yes, 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 you are correct, you are correct. But in certain aspects, like uh, lively aspects, not uh, work aspects or stuff, in lively aspects, for example, if uh, someone... Uh, let's say Mr. A is having a wife how uh, his wife uh, a, a wife and Mr. B is having if B go and commit adultery with uh, A's wife B, uh, A will never forgive B so if in, in, in livelihood in fact in the life situation they rarely forgive but in normal situation they forgive Okay, but I mean, there's very few societies that actually forgive people for adultery. I mean, it's a pretty strong sentiment. Is there any another example you can give me where you find that they don't forgive? Uh, it's mostly adultery and... Uh... But hold on one second here, Gaspar. Yeah. Men cheat all the fucking time. They're always fucking around. Yes. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and women know this. They catch them, everything. The phone rings at midnight and they pick up and it's their girlfriend and that kind of stuff. And, and this happens constantly in African society. I know this. Yes. So, <laughs> the women are obviously forgiving all these little crimes. Uh, not really. They don't just have a choice. The problem is if they, if they, if they separate with this man, no other, man, other men will use them, but they wouldn't take them for their wife or stuff because they already have kids and no man will prefer a lady who is already used up with another man having kids and the rest. They, need, they want fresh uh, young girls. So they are fed up, it's true, and they are angry with those men, but they are just patient. But they forgive. Uh, 
they will be keeping it in their heart and staying quiet. But it does not mean that they forgive. They for, they are forgiving the men. So you're saying that, but what about when a man, because I mean, African women are not always faithful either. And so when a man catches an African woman, does he, is he even less forgiving? He's less forgiving. He's not patient. He, he, will, he will throw you outside of the house. He will say, okay, go and meet the man. He will throw your luggage with you and you go away. Okay, so there it will result in divorce? Yes. Okay, so that, that's an example of not being forgiving. Okay, so the women are kind of not, maybe he's not forgiving, but at least understanding, or at least they're just kind of trapped. Yes. Okay, so two of the seven so far you're questioning. Let's go to the last three. Number eight, they value the extended family. Yes, yes. Number nine, they are polite, they respect elders, and they're gentle. Very correct. And last one, number 10, is that they're well-dressed. Uh, traditionally, yes. Okay, but I'm just saying that when you factor in, of course, some people dress poorly, um, but it's usually because they're poor. But even the poorest Africans, to me, they wash, they take a shower, and they have clean clothes. Yes, I accept that. Okay, so to me that is, and they really care about, it doesn't matter how poor an African is, but they seem to groom themselves, their hair is good, the women will spend their last few cents to fix their hair. That's very true and correct. <laughs> so to me, it's all about, you know, very good grooming. And, and it's, a, it's a very important part of African society, I think, to look good. And, and it is one of their qualities. I mean, they really, and the, the clothes, I love the African clothes. They're, they look spectacular in them. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. So we got uh, two, eight out of ten, I think is, is right. Did I say eight out of, yes. is that right? Eight out of ten. Yes, 8 out of 10, uh, uh, correct. Okay, so now we'll go to the 10 negative traits about Africa, or Africans, should I say. This is not going to be fun. We're not going to, I never proclaimed this is going to be fun, but I want to go through this list and see if we can get 8 out of 10 of them agreeing with you, or you're going to disagree with all of them. Number one, dis- dishonesty, inability to convey bad news and corruption. Correct. Okay, so... Number two, lack of trust, jealousy, envy. Yes, correct. Number three, laziness, poor work ethic, beggars and takers. Yes, correct. Number four, time is worthless. There's chronic tardiness, poor planners, short-term thinkers. Yes, correct. Number five, men abandon their children, their absent or abusive fathers. Yes, exactly. Number six, lack of curiosity. In, uh, this is interesting because uh, coming, talking to you because I think you're an exception to this rule. And again, this is a common trait. This is not, and, and you're a perfect example of this, but, but do you think that most Africans are, they have this lack of curiosity, lack of inventiveness, lack of ambition, lack of initiative? Uh, I think this has been groomed. This has been imposed to them because... If the few people who want to be creative, who want to be curious, are being shot, like they are being uh, 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 downgraded in front of the class and they are being insulted, so they are always ashamed of uh, asking some questions and the rest. So I think 
this aspect is being uh, groomed by the lecturers themselves. They are the ones who block students from being curious, from questioning them. Yeah. Okay, and that's interesting because you, I was expecting when you said this has been groomed, I was expecting the old answer, which is, which actually, by the way, not a lot of Africans say this, but, but occasionally you'll hear like, we've been groomed by the colonial masters. It's all the fault of the French who taught us to be not innovative and all this other stuff. Yeah, this is an old, it's, in fact, it comes from our ancestors and our ancestors have been groomed by the colonial masters. So in the long run, it's, this is the fault of the colonial masters. But you, what's interesting about you, when you said it's the fault, the first thing you pointed to was the current leadership of the current instructors who kind of are continuing this tradition. Yes, because if the, if the current leaders stop it, the next generation leaders will not use it again because it all depends on the current leaders and the current generation. So you're saying that there is a lack of innovation, a lack of creativeness and, 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 and just kind of thinking out of the box, but it's not something that's kind of inherent in the society. It's more the fact that it's perpetuated by the society because the teachers are not changing their habits and as a result people are just falling along blindly exactly only few don't follow blindly but so how do you change i mean you're just saying because you, why did you not follow blindly gaspar because uh, i i am not depending on only what the teacher gives me because i mostly take my lectures we have many online free resources from other universities if a teacher gives me something i usually go and compare with for for example the mit open courseware which is an online free platform for mit courses uh, we have uh, stanford courses at, on udacity we have uh, like for example a, a course on machine learning from uh, professor uh, andrew ng who is one of my favorite uh, professors and um, we have a lot of free resources online so if a teacher is telling me that a plus b equals c I need to be convinced and I need to be sure that in Stanford, A plus B is equal to C and in uh, MIT, A plus B equal to C. Right. No, that's true. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't think just like that. And that's the kind of thinking that Africans need to have in order to kind of push ahead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so let's move on, which is kind of a related point here, and again, kind of contradictory to who you are, Gaspar, because you're everything that's, you know, you're not on this list. Number seven is lack of interest in reading, learning, and self-improvement. Yeah, uh, majority of people, uh, they love free marks, for example, on my, f from my experience. They love free marks. They don't want to do anything, but they want to pass. They want to have good grades. But they don't think that uh, all this comes with hard work, sleepless night, burning of the midnight candle and the rest. They don't think about it. They just think that, okay, let me relax and chill, but I will still pass. So that is how they think. All that aligns with it. So, so far, I mean, I don't know if we're seven out of seven or six. Seven out of seven. Okay, so let's move on to number eight tribalism a disinterest in doing something that improves the wider community the nation or the world very correct for example uh, this recent uh, concours this recent uh, national exam on uh, police uh, the the result came out and we saw that nearly three pages were names of people from the same uh, tribe or village how can 
around like let's say in number like uh, 300 or, or 400 people passing in national exam 300 or 400 people passing in one village this is not really very possible in the real world it does not mean that only these people are excellent in in fact they master the police exams and the rest and they are excellent in that that is not possible that's not really it doesn't make any sense but that's the reality that's the result do you think that that's going to be changing in Benel in Africa? For example, do you find that there's national identities being formed? Let's say you you went to Togo, Ghana, uh, Benin, and Nigeria, and Gabon, and Chad, these countries, do you find that people are still more tied to their tribe, or are they tied more to their nation, or neither? Uh, I think people are more tied to their tribes, uh, because... When I see the way they behave and the way they do things, uh, they it mostly describe their tribes and not their nation. The only exception is in soccer. Yes, yes, in soccer. <laughs> That's <is> very true. <laughs> Number nine, high tolerance for imperfection and a poor attention to detail. Yes, 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 that's true. And the last thing, number 10, is fatalistic... They believe in destiny, they're superstitious, and they have an excessive belief in the supernatural and the spirit world. Yes, I've been a victim on this uh, because uh, they believe that the only way you can, you can succeed or you can have good grades every time is when you uh, have superstitious power, you have certain uh, supernatural power that is being uh, granted to you through the witch doctor. But I mean, I extended. I agree with you, and but I, I extended further. I just believe it in a, in a sense of religion. I mean, because Christians are very serious Christians in in Africa, and especially in Ghana and Nigeria. I mean, whew. yes, 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 that's very true. <laughs> and and then and and the Muslims are pretty serious Muslims as well. I mean, all over Africa, it's incredibly uh, they are, are they can be very serious Muslims as well, and, and big deep believers as well. Yes. And so, to me, this belief is not just superstition or animism and that kind of stuff, but it all spiritual stuff and this whole idea of destiny and the fate is not in our hands. If God wills it, you know, this will happen, inshallah. I mean, it's all this idea that they are not driving the car. Yes, yes. That, that the car is being driven by some external force and they're just a leaf on a river. Yes, that's true. <laughs> and they're just kind of floating along. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, and whatever happens, goes happens. If I have a disease and I die when I'm 30, that's too bad. I mean, that's just the way God wills it. Yes, they always believe like that. And so to me, to me this is... I mean, maybe it's true. I mean, who knows? I, who am I to say that, that we have no free will? I mean, maybe we don't have any free will and that, and that there is some guy in the sky who's controlling everything. But it's a very depressing thought and it's a very disempowering thought when you think that you don't have control over your destiny. Yes, and the sad situation, the sad story here is majority of the people, they usually think like that. They have this belief. For those who are listening to this and who might have been offended to these 10 issues, I find Gaspar's answers to be so in line with the hundreds of other Africans I've met. In other words, Africans, I find, are much more self-critical than non-Africans are about Africa. In other words, if I give that list to 
to a white person in Europe or America or whatever, they will call me a racist or they'll say, you know, oh, Francis, that's, you know, you're being too hard on them. You're, that's not true. This, you know, those traits, are, you're, you're generalizing too much. You're, you're, these are negative stereotypes that you're per perpetuating. And, <laughs> and, and yet when I give it to actual Africans that I trust they're giving me their honest opinion, they'll say, you know what, Francis, actually, you're kind of right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They said it's, it's yeah, it's this true. Is who we are. This is who we are. Yeah. And 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 to me, I think sometimes we lose introspection. I mean that that if I tell Americans, you know, Americans are blindly patriotic. That Americans don't know much about the rest of the world. They don't know much about geography. That Americans are fat. Uh, that Americans are um, watch too much TV or whatever. You know. If I give off these negative stereotypes, many Americans will say, yeah, of course, <laughs> that's who we are, that's, that's us. And if, especially if they're a bit of objectivity. And I think sometimes we, sometimes non-Africans are too quick to, or, or maybe other black people who live outside of, you know, they could be black Americans, African Americans, they are too quick to say, oh, you're racist for, for saying this. Yes, yes. Uh, I think yes. What you are saying is correct because I, uh, with some, uh, with I had a point in time where I I volunteered to teach uh, kids how to code at the U.S. embassy, and actually I encountered this situation. So I think you are correct. Can you give me uh, explain that a little bit more? What happened? Okay, uh, it's a situation where. We were walking in, uh, on the course and then the kids were to code, how to code, learning programming, computer programming, yes. And uh, some kids were doing some noise and they were disturbing and one, one uh, coordinator was saying that, oh, uh, you, uh, the, because there is a race here, they call them BT. The BT, you these BT people, you are always uh, negative. Even here, you can't respect yourself. Uh, as the guy was saying it, there was one American who was standing, he was saying, come on, why are you so hard on, on the kid? And uh, Meanwhile, is the reality of BT people, that's how they are. But the American was like, no, the, why are you so, so hard on the hard? You're just a kid, don't be like that. So I think what you're saying is correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do hope, I mean, people like you, Gaspar, who break these stereotypes, because I just listed 10 negative uh, traits that I see that are common. But when I say common, I don't mean everybody. And you and many other people that I know break those stereotypes completely. And Africa needs more people like you to do that for the continent, I think, to change. And I don't think you don't even need the majority of Africans to be like you. You just need critical mass. You just need to be, you know, 1% of the population. Right now, I don't think you're 1%. You are in the top 0.1%. So you're one in 1,000 or maybe one in 10,000 or one in 100,000. And that's too small for the continent to advance. They need more Gaspars. They need to people like you to be one in 100 for this continent or at least this country of Cameroon to advance. And until that happens, it's going to be a struggle. Yes, it's really going to be strong because my aim, this, that's the reason why uh, the only way I can do it, majority of uh, the situation I saw is um, to empower others to be like me. And uh, the way to do it is uh, through the, the school I was talking about in the north. 
because in the north many of my peers and the people I taught are seeing me like an icon uh, who because uh, I've been on TV shows, CRTV and the rest have been giving me some interviews about uh, my achievement and some of the projects I've been working on. So they are happy when they see me around and they're happy. They are always like, please uh, come and also help us. The only way I can do it is through creating a school around that place and then uh, helping to empower others to be like me and giving them the secrets to, to, to do certain things. Well, I hope uh, they can clone you soon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I got your DNA sample in your hair already. <laughs> hopefully you do it, and hopefully it's the same Gaspard. <laughs> so if you see your evil twin brother? <laughs> I'll be wondering, but I will know that, no, that is the fake Gaspard, not the real one. <laughs> um, well, I really appreciate your time. Now, if somebody wants to give you a scholarship, they're listening to this, and they say, or oh, they want to offer you a job, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, I think I'm all over the social media and I have uh, the email, my email, phone number and the rest. They can contact me via those and I'll be very, very happy to, to welcome them and to discuss with them. What is your preferred social media and what is the username that you use? Okay, uh, I have two, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, both of them, my name is by Gaspard uh, on both of them. Spell that out slowly. Okay. B-A-Y-E space Gaspard is G-A-S-P-A-R-D. Great. And so that way people can look you up online. And if they have any feedback to give you, they, would, they can do that. I really wish you the best. And I know you're going to be successful in life. That's, I don't think, a, a question. That, that's definitely going to happen. The question is, is what? You know, where, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to use these, not just gifts, but, you know, I hate when people say you're gifted because that sounds like you haven't worked for it. And so you've actually worked for it as well. So, and I salute you and I congratulate you for that. And so I think the question is, is what is. So the last question is, we're looking at our crystal ball, the year is 2050. What has Gaspar done and what? Where is he doing? What is he living? How is he in the year 2050? Okay, uh, in the year 2050, Gaspard cre uh, helped to create many leaders who will uh, join the revolution for new Africa, for the developed Africa, for the new Africa having the new mindset and uh, getting rid of this old mindset of uh, blocking people to think out of the box, blocking people to be curious and innovative, to question the authority. So uh, all this through a school called uh, Marwa Institute of Technology that I already have a name, MIT. Uh, so uh, And again, uh, people less death rate because of the application that Gaspard is working on now by 2050, it will reduce at least the death rate, uh, maybe 70%, and reducing people from having unnecessary death. Meanwhile, death which could have been prevented if detected early because 
if we can rapidly predict, prevent, and uh, if we can detect these uh, diseases, these respiratory diseases that eradicate a lot of our people, a lot of our friends, a lot of our families, the savings will be priceless. Wonderful. Let's end on that note. Thank you, Gaspar, so much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Francis. Thank you, too. And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to WanderLearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember ftapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.